This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. What is quantum technology and why will it change the future? In this episode, Professor Warwick Bowen explains to us what quantum technology is and why it will be such a significant step change in the way that technology will operate in the future. Professor Bowen is a professor of physics at UQ's Faculty of Science. He's recognised both nationally and internationally for research at the interface of nanotechnology and quantum science, including nanophotonics, nanomechanisms, quantum optomechanics and photonic quantum sensing. He was an Australian Future Fellow and he leads the Quantum Optics Laboratory at UQ. He's Director of the UQ Precision Sensing Initiative. He's a theme leader of the Australian Centre for Engineered Quantum Systems. So, Professor Bowen, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, For someone who dropped out of their science degree in their first year, could you explain to me, um, in words that I might be able to understand, what quantum sensing is and what the hype is all about? Absolutely. So... So quantum sensors are a form of quantum technology and quantum technologies are all about using the laws of quantum physics to improve performance or enable entirely new sorts of technologies that we couldn't even imagine if um, if we didn't have quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is about um, very small objects and the fact that, as, that these small systems like atoms and molecules and photons behave differently than we'd normally expect from a day-to-day experience. So quantum technologies exploit those differences to improve performance. There are three types of quantum technologies broadly classed. There are quantum communication technologies which improve communication. There are quantum computing technologies that promise exponential speed-ups in computing. And there are quantum sensing technologies, which are what we're talking about here. The quantum sensing technologies... There's really two different categories, I would say. So there's quantum sensing technologies where quantum mechanics imposes limits on how precisely you can measure or see something. And using tricks, using quantum phenomena, such as quantum entanglement, which is a phenomena that Einstein described as spooky interactions at a distance and involves correlations between systems that are stronger than, than you could achieve classically and different than you could achieve classically. So using those sorts of quantum phenomena to break what would otherwise be fundamental limits in performance and sensitivity um, and resolution and things like this in in your imaging. Um, And the other sort of technologies of quantum sensors, quantum sensors which enable entirely new types of sensing that would be impossible otherwise, so enable you to see stimuli that are really difficult to see. So measure magnetic fields, for example, um, which are difficult to, to measure with other sorts of technologies. Right. So sensing technologies will let us see through walls. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they, very literally, they let you see through walls. One of the most significant current quantum sensing uh, capabilities is to be able to sense magnetic fields, which I mentioned earlier. And magnetic fields propagate through walls, right? They propagate through Earth. And that means if you can sense magnetic fields better, you can uh, see what's underneath the Earth or see what's through walls 
um, better. This is actually widely used in industry, for example, in uh, in understanding structural integrity of concrete walls. Some of them have iron rods through them to increase their strength, and you can use magnetic sensors to identify whether that's the case. And in fact, everyone's heard of metal detectors. They're, they use magnetic sensors so you can scan a beach for valuables or whatever you might be interested in. The challenge is if you want, you know, there are some objects that have large magnetic fields like iron rods, but there are many objects that have weaker magnetic fields. And as objects get further under, under Earth or under sea, the magnetic fields they generate at the position of a sensor, which might be above the surface of the Earth, become smaller. So in order to measure those fields, you need new classes of sensors. And quantum sensing has really revolutionized how well you can measure magnetic fields and therefore how deep under Earth or in the ocean you can detect, detect them. So magnetic fields is one. What, what is another kind of sensing that quantum technology can assist with? That's a good question. Another very important example is in measurements of acceleration or inertia. Um, you know, in your phone, you have a small um, mechanical device that when you move the phone, it gets deflected and that tells the phone how it's moving. And if you play games on your phone, it's, um, you can move the phone and it can respond to that. But these sorts of sensors are also really crucial in navigation. If you want to understand um, how fast you're turning or how fast you're accelerating, then accelerometers are used. And this is, it's, particularly important for navigation in GPS-denied environments. So we all, we all use GPS on probably almost a daily basis. It's a very, very powerful tool to know where you are, right? But GPS is susceptible to, it's based on satellites, and those satellites are susceptible to influences such as ionising radiation. So um, some of you, some people might be aware that solar flares knock out satellites. So there have been periods where, where GPS has not been available because of a solar flare. In fact, the prediction is that a hundred year solar, solar flare event could create trillions of dollars of damage by knocking out satellites. Now, of course, satellites can also be knocked out in other ways, such as electromagnetic pulses. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do that, then, then how do you navigate? It's, it becomes much harder. There's no ideal solution, right? But the solution is to use geological features and geographic features around you mm-hmm. and combine that with inertial sensors. So the geographic features tell you broadly where you are. Yeah. And then the inertial sensors tell you how your how your position, if you know your velocity, then you can tell how your position is changing over time. And if you know your acceleration, you know how your velocity is changing over time. So with all this information, you can then plot a trajectory of where you're going. So inertial sensors roll they allow you to navigate precisely when there's no GPS. Mm-hmm. And but the challenge is that is that if you get if you get your velocity wrong, yeah. right? If you get your acceleration wrong, mm-hmm. then that bleeds into a velocity change and mm-hmm. error. And over time that velocity area error grows into an increasing position error. Mm-hmm. So you need extremely precise inertial sensors to be able to tell where you are. Yeah. It's a really critical problem. The most significant example of where these precise inertial sensors are required actually is in submarines and in undersea navigation. And the reason for that is that, of course, 
the ocean is salty. And the salt in the ocean means that it's conductive to electricity. And that means that GPS signals can't propagate through the ocean. So as soon as you're under the ocean, you don't have a GPS signal. <laughs> so if you have, if you're in a submarine, what's your what's the solution to this? Well, then navigate with inertial sensors to to keep track of where you are. Eventually, you're going to have to come back up again to correct correct your your navigation. So the more precisely you know where you are, the less often you have to come up with error, and the less vulnerable you are to detection. Um, and quantum sensors, they offer sensitivity in measuring inertia that in principle is far better than current sensors. So they could replace, and I would say augment existing inertial sensing systems in submarines and also in other mobile platforms such as drones. Listening to you describe how it could be applied in the general sense, I could see how important that might be for making sure that submarines or marine vessels or any vessels that are attributed to a state aren't in the wrong place because I think um, we've heard of a number of instances internationally where there have been warships or state state flag vessels that have been in um, in places where they shouldn't have been or thought that they weren't um, which could cause significant strategic impact um, if if they're in the wrong place doing the wrong thing at the wrong time so having that kind of enhanced enhanced ability to locate them is pretty important. But that comms denial piece, I think, is also something a lot of people are thinking about watching what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. I think there was a bit of surprise that there hasn't been a, a, a sort of a communications denial environment. Hmm. Yeah, I can give you some examples of quantum communication. So so the the primary application of quantum communication is in cryptography, mm-hmm. is in sending secure messages. Um, and the reason quantum cryptography is interesting is that throughout the history of cryptography, basically smart people have designed cunning ways to avoid detection. So you might write a message um, at really small scale on the dot of an eye, and only if you know to look at that particular dot can you see the message. Or you might you might create some, some code where an A is actually a C and a B is actually a D or whatever, right? But... Until quantum cryptography, there was no cryptography tactic that was provably secure. Mm-hmm. So you you know you get your smart people to to make their clever clever code, yep. but then smarter people could break potentially break that code. And of course, this perfect example of that happening in World War Two with the Enigma machine and mm-hmm. the massive advantage that allies got from being able to break those codes. You know, quantum cryptography, it's not guaranteed to be 100% secure, but quantum physics tells you how secure it is. Right. You can design your cryptography system to make it essentially as secure as you like. There are sacrifices, mm-hmm. so you need to send more code. It's a bigger tail. To get a more secure communication, right? Sure. So you have, you know, the more secure you want to be, the lower the bit rate of communication you can achieve. And, and the more vulnerable to interception, I assume. Well, I guess if you're communicating for I'm not an expert in this, but I guess mm. if you're communicating for longer, then you could you may be intercepted or blocked. Mm. You may be more likely to be intercepted or blocked. I think that's that's fair. So that, so that's sort of the benefit of cryptography is you have this, you know that you've got a certain level of security. 
And even in future, 10 years' time or 50 years' time, when technology and techniques are improved, you still have that level of security. Um, and actually, one of the motivations, one of the particular motivations for quantum cryptography is that quantum computers, a key application of them, is to be able to break current cryptography. Right. So current cryptography, RSA cryptography, uses a mathematical um, technique, uses the, the fact that it's very hard to factorize semi-prime numbers. So if I take mm-hmm. if I take two prime numbers mm-hmm. and I multiply them together into a semi-prime and I give them to you and I ask you, okay, um, try to figure out what the two prime numbers were, then if they're small, if they're, I don't know, three and five, and I give you 15, you can very quickly figure out that, okay, it must be three and five. Mm-hmm. It turns out that the problem of, of finding those two primes, it, it gets exponentially more complex as I make the prime numbers larger. And that's what current cryptography is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, except that quantum, for quantum computers, it's not exponentially more difficult. The complexity increases as you increase the size of the primes, but only only much slower than exponential. So every current cryptography technique is vulnerable to quantum computers. So were you to build one, and people are, suddenly all of this historical record of communication becomes insecure and future communications become insecure. So you need new techniques to, to become invulnerable to that. And one of them is quantum communication cryptography. So Bitcoin's only going to be good for as long as there's no good quantum computers out there and as long as then defeated by some quantum communications cryptography on the other side of that. I, I would caveat all this story that, you know, there are smart people in cryptography mm. and um, it's quite probable, in fact, I expect there are there do exist post-quantum classical cryptography techniques that are difficult for quantum computers to solve. So it may be, it may be that the solution for Bitcoin and for Cryptography is just to employ a different form of classical cryptography rather than employing quantum cryptography to make cryptography secure. And I guess time will uh, Defeat high tech with low tech. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, any technology, it's a trade off between, between the level of sophistication and the capability, right? You want to have very high capability, but you want, actually want the technology to be low tech. You want it to be not sophisticated because if it's not sophisticated, it's cheap, easy to make, and generally robust. There's definitely a trade-off there. And most quantum technologies sit more on the sophisticated, complex to build and expensive side of side of things. So does that mean quantum technology is going to be the next step change, do you think? Because after it becomes used and regular regularly, I guess, rolled out, it becomes cheaper over time. Is that is it the next step change in technology or is it already here? I mean, how is it How is it viewed? Yeah, well, there's a lot of people, of course, there's a lot of um, hyper-income technologies at the moment. There's a lot of people who view it as one of the one of the next step t- changes along with other things like, like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and time will tell. If you look at, you know, history, well, there are already quantum technologies that are used. So an example is, is the clocks we use in GPS to tell where we are. So they are based on uh, atomic energy levels and essentially quantum technology. So the question is, the question is really how widespread will we see quantum technologies becoming and mm-hmm. how impactful will their applications be? 
And it's a difficult question to answer. There are, there are predictions that even within the next two decades, uh, quantum technologies will represent as much as a $700 billion industry. It's really very large and spanning many areas from these sorts of, sorts of applications we're talking about to, to even um, development of chemicals and pharmaceuticals. So understanding how proteins interact with each other, which is really crucial for developing um, chemicals, agricultural products, catalysts and things like this. With any new technology, you're right, it, it comes down to whether this curve of increasing adoption, driving down costs and improving performance, how that curve works out and difficult to predict in advance it's very difficult to predict in advance. You direct the facility, the UQ Precision Technologies Translation Hub, which looks into, among other things, how quantum technology and photonics can enhance sensitivity and speed, lowering energy consumption and miniaturizing sensing devices. Um, can you tell us a little about the facility and how you see sensing devices might be enhanced? Yeah, absolutely. So for many decades now, physicists have been performing proof of print experiments showing that quantum technologies can provide advantages over conventional technologies. And now, now we see industry and startups and government investing need to translate these ideas into real applications. The core idea of the hub is to enable the linkages between academics and industry and to provide capabilities to transition technologies towards industry applications. Really, the big challenge with quantum technologies and, in fact, with deep technologies in general is that it's relatively easy. It's not trivial by any standard, but it's relatively easy to do the perfect principle. But then bringing the technology up, what are called the technology readiness levels, to a point where industry is able to take it and make a profit from it, which is, of course, what they need to seriously invest in it, Mm. is a major, major challenge and involves far more investment of of funding than was required to do the the proof of principles. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to fill that gap to some extent. We're trying to provide researchers with the tools to package to take quantum devices, which might be on an optical table that on a you know some lab bench that's several meters in size, connected to twenty different pieces of electronics and laser systems, and compact that all down into a box that might be a shoebox size or even a single silicon chip, and do that in partnership with industry so that they can see that the technology can be deployed outside of labs mm-hmm. and and what the steps are that are necessary to do to do that. Now, there was a second part of your question. It was about some examples. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one example of the technology that we're developing in my lab that benefits from the facilities in our, in our hub. And that is a new type of computer technology, so it's actually not sensing mm-hmm. it's computing. And it's also not quantum, but it's using the same sort of technologies we developed to build quantum technologies. It's a new type of computing technology that we're working on. We've been, we've been working with Lockheed Martin, mm-hmm. which is one of the world's largest aerospace companies, yeah. um, 
on for the last decade or so. And it's addressing a key problem for satellites, which I sort of referred to earlier. They're in this very harsh environment where solar flares and other ionizing radiation, mm. they're not protected from that from, by the ozone layer like we are. And so these, this ionizing radiation causes severe damage to electronic, electronic systems. And that can be somewhat mitigated by designing the electronic systems to be radiation hard, to be robust to radiation, and to put them in shielded environments. But all of this adds weight and even doesn't fully, fully resolve the challenge of ionizing radiation. So the idea was to develop a more radi- radiation immune, not quite immune, but much more immune to radiation sort of computing technology. Mm-hmm. And that technology is based on mechanical vibrations, so acoustic waves, if you like, that we can find on a silicon chip. So instead of building computers based on the flow of electrons, we're building them based on the flow of vibrations. And electrons react very strongly to ionizing radiation. So if you don't use them, you can make devices that are much more robust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're now at a stage where we've proved the principle of this idea. We can do um, logic operations, basic computing operations on a silicon chip using mechanical vibrations. But in order for that to be useful to Lockheed and in general, we need to scale up from one gate, which is what we currently have, to I think 10,000 gates. It's very small compared to a regular computer, but with 10,000 gates, you can build um, a servo controller that stabilizes the orientation of a satellite. Wow. And then and then you can make the orientation robust to radiation. So you can choose key elements of the satellite, yep. which are particularly important and make them radiation hard. So the goal is now to scale that to 10,000 gates, but in order to do that, you need to integrate this quite complex mechanical circuit, circuitry, like an electrical circuit, with all sorts of other stuff. And you've got to, you've got to be able to have that all packaged on a chip, um, sealed in a nice box. Yeah. And so our hub facilities provide what's called optoelectronic integration capabilities that allow us to do exactly, exactly that. Right. Well, that answers my question about what optoelectronic integration was because I had no idea when I saw that on your bio. So thank you for that. Um, So with all of that in mind, I think one of the questions that comes to my mind thinking about um, the regulation of future technology in armed conflict is how um, fusion of sensors works when we're talking about acquiring lawful targets and how the use of quantum technology might enhance the ability to see on the battlefield or confirm what it is that we're seeing on the battlefield. Um, does quantum technology have a particular role in the fusion of multiple sensor inputs or sorting through data? Yeah, look, I'm not an expert in um, in the first half of what you were describing. In, sure. You know, lawfully identifying targets and drones and things like this. But what I can say is that for most specific, most sophisticated technologies like drones, there is an element of sensor fusion. So you have an array of different types of sensors and all of those sensors have different capabilities and you fuse the information you get from all of those sensors to make decisions and to learn about your environment. And defence application situational awareness is really important, knowing where you are, 
how fast in a wide range of sort of categories that might get you better precision, they might let you see further, they might let you see through walls, as you mentioned, um, they might let you observe different things, or you may, may even let you observe a particular thing faster. You know, you don't have to integrate your signals as long, so you can you can see fast changes in parameters. All of those sorts of things are important. So any sensor that can provide you benefits in one of those areas is a sensor that may be attractive for adding to sophisticated systems to improve their broad capabilities. And quantum sensors do offer offer those sorts of advantages in several of those, those areas. So I guess that's in terms of what that system is sensing at the time, but then can quantum computing also do anything when it comes to analysing large amounts of data in, in shorter periods of time? Yeah, so that's an area I'm not a huge expert in. Um, mm. There is, it's sort of a new area in quantum technology is the quantum machine learning. Mm. So how can you employ quantum technologies to improve how you process information, how machines learn on autonomous machines learn on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, I could imagine there may be, there may be applications there, but mm-hmm. because I'm not an expert, I, I, I'm not confident whether, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to predict into the future whether that, 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 will, uh, that will happen. Well, that seems to be a problem with quantum technology generally because it's just it seems to have just so many varying applications that could really significantly change how we do business in pretty much every facet of of life. Um, or am I overselling the technology here? Well, I'm not sure if that's the I'm not sure if that's an oversell. I mean, if we go back to the transistor, yeah. um, when that was developed, you could have speculated a very wide range of applications and you would have been proven correct, right? But, of yeah. course, there are probably hundreds of other technologies like the transistor that got developed, and if you speculated that wide range of applications that you would have been incorrect, right, they wouldn't have eventuated. So we're sort of at that stage with quantum, te- with quantum technologies where you can speculate a very broad range of applications that may come to pass, it may not. I'm confident that that there will be significant applications of quantum technologies, further ones than the ones that already exist. And there is the potential that they are extremely impactful applications, but only time only time and effort will tell. You, you talked about quantum technology and the possibilities of all of these technological changes, but is there anything else out there that's being developed at the moment in different fields that might have the same sort of impact or is it really out on its own as far as this computing power, this ability to enhance systems and technologies that exist? And machine learning is is one way, but I think people always talk about machine learning in the context of what quantum computing could do when they're coupled together. So is there is there something else there? What's your biggest competitor? Yeah, that's a good question and a difficult question to answer. 
So there are some areas where we know that quantum is the only option. Right. Because you can, unless unless the rules of physics are wrong, you know, the laws of physics could be wrong, you know, that's possible. It's not impossible. And then and then maybe you could um, uh, achieve certain performance that we believe currently you can only achieve with quantum technologies, right, without them. That's possible. But if you believe the laws of physics as they are now, there are some applications where where there's really no competition. Yeah. And one of them is in in computing for very specific problems. So one of those problems is this factorizing semi-prime numbers we talked about for breaking encryption. Yeah. If you need to factorize those semi-prime numbers, then people have tried to do that using mathematical techniques mm-hmm. for many, for probably centuries. And I think there's a broad consensus that it probably isn't possible with techniques other than quantum. So then, so there you've got a concrete example of someone with this, at least currently, with our current understanding, no competition with quantum computers. Now, that's not to say that quantum computers have a, you know, free path to applications. The challenge is to build quantum computers that are robust enough and large enough to be able to take advantage of that capability in a way that's cost effective, right? So this, it's not really the competition's not really with you know, what is the technology that will achieve this. The, the competition is will quantum computers get to the point where they can achieve this in a commercially relevant way. So that's the challenge for challenge there. And in quantum sensors, there are similar situations where you know that there's no way to get more information from a particular measurement without recourse to quantum mechanics. And so one example um, from, from my lab in the last year is that we, we showed that you could build microscopes mm-hmm. using quantum techniques that can resolve biological specimens. It's not, this is very different sort of application, but they can resolve biological specimens, image them with a clarity that's beyond the capability of conventional microscopes. And the, the key the key challenge that underpinned that result was that generally with conventional microscopes, the way to improve contrast, ultimately the way to improve imaging contrast is to increase the intensity of light that you use in, to form the image, you turn the intensity up. And at some point you start destroying your sample. You can't keep turning intensity up. So the best microscopes now use intensities that are comparable to the intensity that you might have played around with as a kid with a with a magnifying glass and ants right from the sun you might have you might have explored the effect of radiation from the sun on ants or you know maybe something else you may have shown that you could burn paper <laughs> by focusing sunlight right that intensity is the same sort of intensity as people use in precision microscopes right. so it's really a critical problem that can you really trust what you're measuring because, because the light itself is, is, is making the sample very unhealthy. Yeah. And so we, what we showed is, and it's the first demonstration that you can absolute performance advantage in quantum sensing with light is oh. that you could go beyond that under the microscopes. So there you know if you want. Now the question is do you care? Right. Is the extra cost of building this more sophisticated microscope 
worth mm-hmm. the information you get from being able to probe samples with more precision. And, and that's yet to be yet to be seen. But at least there you know that, that there's not a conventional technology that's going to be able to compete with that. But, but so there are some examples of this, right? But there are other cases where you could use a conventional technology and it's just a question of which ends up being superior. You know, there's no guarantee that the quantum technology is superior. As you said, because quantum seems to be a phrase that people throw at everything sort of new and and I think having it defined and explained as to how it might apply to these other areas is, is really helpful for someone like me who um who just hears these these new technological words thrown out there and and isn't quite sure how it might apply to those capabilities so that's been really helpful thank you very much I appreciate that so there is one other area which I hadn't emphasis emphasized of um, application of national security of quantum technologies that's often overlooked and I think is a really important application yeah. So we talked about applications in secure communication, code breaking, and situational awareness sensors that allow you to see where you are and know where you're going. And another important application is in threat detection, in particular biological and chemical threat detection. Oh, yeah. So we all we all know, you know, through our experience with COVID nineteen, how damaging to society biochemical threats can be. Yeah. They could be natural or they could be designed in a lab, right? And so there's really, a, there's really a strong motivation to improve our capabilities to detect these, these threats. Mm-hmm. And there are several quantum technologies that are now being developed that can allow you to do this. So one of them comes back to these very precise magnetic sensors I talked about, yeah. which you could use to see through walls, to, to, they could use them what's called magnetic anomaly detection to detect a submarine or an underground bunker or something. But you can also use them to detect magnetic properties of molecules. Right. And you you might be familiar, you will be familiar, I'm sure, with MRI. Mm -hmm. So the M stands for magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging. It turns out you can apply the same sort of techniques as you're familiar with imaging body parts or whole bodies Mm -hmm. um, to identifying specific molecules. So you can take a small sample of liquid and you can do what's called NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. It's the same thing as MRI, essentially, mm-hmm. on that small sample of molecules and fingerprint what sort of chemical they are so you can detect whether they're explosive. Mm-hmm. Because these quantum magnetometers are much more sensitive than state-of-the-art conventional magnetometers, you can then do that sort of analysis on much smaller samples and faster times. So that's one application. And the, the other example is in, is in molecular fing, fingerprinting of proteins. So, you, so it's been, there's this very interesting um, research which has looked at how spike proteins move. So, of course, we all know now that spike proteins are the proteins on the surface of a virus that allow it to get into your cells. Yep. Um, and how they move is really critical to how the virus finds its way into your cells. Mm-hmm. And it turns out if you look at different viruses, those spike proteins move in a very different sort of way. Yep. So if you can if you can fingerprint how they move, then there's hope that you can detect the virus and identify what it is. Mm-hmm. We we have rat tests and other sorts of tests to do this, 
But those tests are chemical tests, which just tell you yes or no. Yes, you have COVID-19 or no, you don't. They don't tell you you have the flu or you have COVID or, or this is some other protein or this is harmless, right? So if you can do spectroscopic fingerprinting of motion proteins, then you can you don't get a yes no anymore you get oh okay this is that protein right and it's associated with that virus or that whatever um, and so that in principle could be really powerful and um, quantum some quantum technologies provide ways to get precise fingerprints of those sorts of vibrations right again just the different applications that you just when you say quantum, you know, it, it's not something that immediately comes to mind. So thank you so much for all of that information. And you obviously have a wealth of knowledge across all of those different areas, which is um, also a, a challenge to explain to someone like me who went to do law because numbers and science was too hard. So for someone on the outside like me then, with that in mind, um, you've, you've got a really great Briz Science um, YouTube clip that we'll link to in the show notes that explains quantum as well. But is there any other resources you'd recommend to people to have a look at this, this area? It's actually quite hard to point people to a good resource. There's a lot out there. If you just go to Google and search quantum technologies, you'll get a lot of, of links. Um, the challenge is that off, you know, quantum physics is complicated, yeah. right? And it's counterintuitive. And really, to understand it properly, you need to do probably more than a degree, right? So, so the resources are either resources that are simplified for for the public, and that's great, or they're um, quite dense yeah. for the expert. Yeah. Find, you know, finding resources that can bridge that gap between the dense stuff and the more superficial stuff. I, I'm not sure that those resources exist. Okay. Um, maybe that's because it's just not possible to, to bridge that gap without doing a degree, or maybe maybe it is, and we'll figure it away. But Europe has a quantum flagship, mm -hmm. and that quantum flagship has some good sort of background information about um, the different sorts of quantum technologies, quantum computing, quantum communication, quantum sensing. So I could recommend that, but it's it's never going to, you know, it's going to tell you the what, what can quantum technologies do, but it's not really going to tell you the how because the how is generally quite technical. I think that that's probably useful for us is to know the what rather than necessarily the how and we'll leave it to, to people like you to, I think, make that transition. Right, right. The, the other thing I can recommend actually is that recently there have been some consultant firms, so McKinsey is the one that I'd recommend um, most strongly, who I guess have, have brought people with quantum experience into them mm -hmm. to, to span this gap between understanding what the technologies can do and understanding what the potential impact can, can be. And so there are some really good reports from those sort from, I, I really would recommend McKinsey, mm -hmm. that go into um, what current progress is in translating quantum technologies into applications and, and look at what the potential markets could be and explain why those markets are, are at the scale that they, that they are without going into the details of how quantum technologies work. Fantastic. And then obviously everyone should just enrol in a science degree at UQ and start. Well, yeah, I was tempted to say you should, you should do our Master of Quantum Technology. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but well, thank you so much for that, and and I really appreciate your ability to explain the technical into uh, into layman's terms so that I can I can understand it. Well, I'm sure our listeners will will be the same. And uh, thanks again for your for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.